Hi folks, this is Patrick and welcome back to Bibliology. I hope you guys are all doing great and you're looking forward to another hefty dose of uh, biblical scholarship and theology and that's what I got for you today. I will be speaking with Dr. Hans Borsma and this will be based on his recent book which you can see in the description. It's called Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew and I'd really recommend that you guys get your hands on that. So Hans is Professor of Ascetical Theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin, and he was previously a teacher of Doctrinal Theology and History of Doctrine in the J.I. Packer Chair at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. He is particularly interested in ascetical and sacramental theology, as well as historical theology, and I have no doubt that you will all benefit from his insights. Let's just say that he has a very unique way of approaching the topic of biblical scholarship and its intersection with the church, and of course that's all that this podcast is about, and um, I think we can learn from him greatly. So without further ado then, let's get on to the show, and I hope you all enjoy it. Okay, well, hello, Dr. Borsma. Um, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So we're going to be speaking about your um, new book, which of course is called Five Things Theologians Wish Bible Scholars Knew. But um, there's, of course, some things that I'd like to um, ask you first, just so myself and the audience can get to know you a little bit better. Um, Absolutely. One thing I... Um, I noticed when I looked up your Wikipedia page, that's uh, maybe not the best policy when you're uh, looking up people to interview. But um, when I was on your Wikipedia page, it said that you are Dutch Canadian. Did they at least get that right? They got that right somehow. Okay. So if these two nations were to play each other in a sports event, who would you support? And I suppose that's a very roundabout way of asking which country do you more identify? What do I really identify as, right? Yeah. So, let me let me answer it two ways. First of all, I, I I never ever watch sports, so you know <laughs> it would be a very difficult way to decide whether I'm Dutch or, or Canadian, um, and it tells you probably a lot about me right there. Um, but if I if I were to choose and I were to watch a game of soccer, which probably would be the sport that I'd watch, uh, I I would go for Holland. That's that's just you know, <laughs> born there, lived there for the first twenty some years of my life. And yes, I would I would cheer on the Dutch. Okay. And at home, would you still speak in um, in Dutch or would you speak in English? Um, my wife's Canadian. Okay. And um, her parents were Dutch, so she understands it and speaks it fairly well as well. But it's much easier for us to speak English. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So you're so you're Dutch through and through then, and that's that's good because uh, the Dutch have a very uh, strong theological tradition of course I've, you know, I've known many Dutch reform people in my lifetime and that's of course your um, your area of expertise is is theology and when I looked at your Wikipedia page it, um, it said that your thesis was entitled um, a hot peppercorn um, rather than something fancy about the the logos or the Nicene <laughs> council or something um, so could you briefly elaborate on this unusual choice of title and the content of this? Thesis? Yes, the, the, the dissertation um, was on Richard Baxter, 17th century Puritan. And um, specifically, I looked at his understanding of justification. He was uh, vehemently attacked, especially by his uh, high Calvinist uh, peers 
for being um, a crypto Catholic in his understanding of, of justification. And uh, one of his opponents, a guy by the name of uh, John Crandon, uh, wrote a book against Baxter in which he, um, he attacked him uh, sharply for an analogy that Baxter had made. And the analogy goes like this. Um, we, we are like the tenant of, of a little house, of a little, a little hut. And um, the, the owner of the house um, comes to us and, and, and says to us, look, you don't have to pay the rent. I'll forgo everything for you. You know, it's all forgiven. You don't have to worry about it. Just, just give me, a, you know, one, one peppercorn a year and, and everything will be fine. And um, the, for Baxter, the peppercorn was the condition of the covenant. It was, it was our faith and obedience. And uh, John Crannon, you know, saw that peppercorn. He thought it was a hot one. And he, he said, uh, you know, that, that peppercorn will, will burn Baxter in hell. That's how hot oh, it is. Goodness. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And um, was this, um, I suppose, were you like chronicling, chronicling the history of this? Or were you trying to see, well, was this guy really a heretic? Or what was the point of the thesis? Um, the, the point for me was, was partially to to trace the history of it, to be sure. So I, I looked at the, uh, at the various controversies that Baxter was engaged in over the topic of justification. I mean, it spanned the entire career of his from, uh, the, from 1641, I believe. I mean, it's been a long time since I looked at this, but I think it was 1641 until 1691 when he wrote a book called The End of Doctrinal Controversy. And I, I usually say it was the end because that's the year he died. And, you know, otherwise it would still have gone on. Um, so I looked at that whole history and the background, the, the people that shaped Baxter's thinking and so on. Um, but for me, there was a personal, as there usually tends to be when people write their dissertations or I write other books, I suppose, uh, there was a personal investment in it. Um, I, um, Baxter was a four-point rather than a five-point Calvinist. That's for, you know, the, the, the real theological, uh, interested, theologically interested people. Um, and I was sympathetic to his more mediating view on, on, on the whole issue surrounding Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, so there was, for me at the time, a, a, a personal investment for sure. Okay, okay, interesting. And it's, it's funny because when you said that he was a, um, they accused him of being a quasi Catholic, I was thinking, so this is like the 17th century anti right, basically. Um, <laughs> yes, in some ways it is. He went a little further. I think than than anti right anti right you know when he talks about um, the 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 uh, the markings of, of of the church he, he talks about faith being the, the the one thing that marks out the people of God um, and and I think Baxter would have said it's it's faith and works uh, he, well, he was a bit, hey. more, a bit more forthright about that or a bit more direct about that I suppose than than anti right might be okay um, moving on to another um, part of history. Um, much earlier, which is, of course, the Church Fathers. Um, it's clear to anyone from reading your book that you you greatly appreciate the Church Fathers. You really appreciate the insights they have for the contemporary church. So I'm wondering if you had to pick a favorite and a least favorite Church Father, um, who would you go for? That's a very difficult question uh, on both counts. Um, let, let's begin with the least favorite. I love the Church Fathers indeed, and to decide which one is the least favorite. Um, is, 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 is a tough one. Um, but maybe maybe we, we, we would go, I would go with, with Theodore of Mopsuestia. Seeing he's an historian, 
Um, and seeing he rejected the Song of Songs, which you know all, all good readers of scripture read allegorically, and uh, and Theodore did as well, and and for that reason he he tossed it out of the canon. Um, so so you know for, for both for his his strong emphasis on the humanity of Christ and 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 and, and his Nestorian uh, corresponding Nestorian proclivities, and for his for his. Um, more literalist readings of scripture, I would say he's perhaps the least favorite of mine. Um, fa the, the favorite ones, I mean, that's that's even more difficult. And I, I suppose I, I'm not allowed to pick two. So let, let's stick with Gregory of Nyssa, although I might, I might in, in a different mood uh, mention somebody else. <laughs> okay. Yes, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, he was actually... Um... I think when I was speaking to Dale Allison on the show, that was his one of his favorites as well. So you're right. you're in good you're in good company there. And uh, <laughs> um, and I was wondering um, why you didn't pick Marcion as your least favorite church father. But then I remembered, no, he wasn't technically a church father. So, <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I went through the same kind of thing in my mind. So is X a church father, yay or nay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll move on to talk a bit about your book. Um, which just to recap for the audience. It's called Five Things Theologians Wish Biblical Scholars Knew. And um, apologies, the audience, if you can hear just a tip tap above you. That's because it's raining and I live in Ireland and it rains in Ireland all the time. So at least it'll give some it'll give some nice ambience to the conversation. Um, so I'm wondering um, uh, if you could explain to the audience, first of all, um, what the difference is between theology and biblical studies, because I think um, most people get it, but until a few years ago, anyway, for me personally, I assumed anyone who studied the Bible was a theologian. Yeah. Um, so could you just lay that out for us? Sure. Um, I, I, I actually think that you weren't, you weren't far off at all in, in your earlier view, in the sense that I don't believe there is such a thing as biblical studies or such a thing as dogmatic theology as two separate disciplines. Of course, they are structured that way often in, in, um, in the academy and in seminaries and so on, so that some people who've studied the Bible lots and, and uh, are called biblical scholars and are, are classified under the discipline of biblical studies, and people who take a more systematic approach to things maybe use various topics such as the doctrine of God and the doctrine of humanity, uh, the doctrine of Christ and so on, um, and, and look at things more systematically or doctrinally. Um, I refer to systematic or dogmatic theologians, and so it's theologians vis-a-vis -vis over against biblical studies, and this is a, this is a division that goes back to the 19th century. Um, since I'm a Christian Platonist, I ask myself the question, so is this real? You know, are there some real forms out there such as biblical studies and, and dogmatic theology? My answer is no. Um, and every dogmatic theologian should be a biblical scholar, and every biblical scholar should be a, should be a dogmatic theologian, I think. Wow. Okay, that's uh, that's certainly a unique way of looking at it. But definitely, this this book was filled with all sorts of unique answers to questions that I had um, never expected. So there's another one, and um, I suppose you know um, that also ties in with I think chapter two of your book, if I remember correctly, it's called "No Plato, No Scripture." Sure. So so is is Platonism is that a, a big part of how you um, approach the Bible? Would you say? It is, um, although I wouldn't want to be misunderstood. 
And I, I, I would want to qualify that and, and put in all sorts of caveats before I gave a positive answer to that. And the, and the main caveat would probably be that one cannot be a straight up Platonist and a Christian at one and the same time. It doesn't work because a Christian would have to turn into a pagan before that could happen. So, so that, that it's not as if, as if a Christian can, can simply read scripture through straightforwardly Platonic lenses. But um, Plato's understanding, and especially later Neoplatonist developments of, of, of the Platonic tradition, um, have, a, have an understanding, a metaphysical understanding of the relationship between creator and creature um, that is participatory in character. So the created things participate in the creator one way or another, and people get different, different responses to how exactly to understand that. But that there is such a participatory relationship strikes me as very important lest, creation, lest we view creation as something that stands on its own two feet apart from the creator. Um, and, and the way that we read scripture um, is, is, is related to that. So on my understanding, the Old Testament, for example, um, should be viewed not just on its own, just as we might view creation on its own. No, the Old Testament should always be viewed as being in a participatory relationship with its Christological fulfillment. So the Christ is always already present in the Old Testament. So old and new are, are co-inhere, as it were, just as God and creature co-inhere. Okay, okay. And um, it's interesting because when it comes to like um, the two disciplines of, well, I know you you reject that they're two different disciplines, <laughs> but... We know what we're talking about. Yeah, but something that I think is usually brought up as distinguishing the two is this issue of... Um, methodological naturalism that if someone is in biblical studies they presuppose something called methodological naturalism and a theologian um, doesn't um and maybe you could offer a definition of what this is and um to what extent um is this involved in your perhaps some of your concerns about contemporary biblical scholarship yeah it's a great question um it, it's definitely true that the the question of the uh, um legitimacy of methodological naturalism plays in the background of the book and and if and, and could perhaps even play a larger role than I've given it in the book because it's it's pretty important in terms of how we decide to read scripture. Methodological naturalism basically means that we um, bracket as it were for the sake of trying to understand the text, the biblical text, we bracket theological presuppositions. We don't we don't we don't deny them. Uh, we don't we don't set them aside so as to never look at them again. But for the sake of reading scripture, well, we say, well, if we want to understand the historical back, backdrop to the Bible, if we want to understand what the author really meant, those sorts of things, um, then we're, we're, we have to bracket the supernatural and we should just look at the natural for now. And then we should ask, then we may ask, especially if you're a dogmatic theologian, you may then ask questions of a theological character of the text uh, as, as, as step two, as it were. You unbracket the naturalism and, and you then um, turn to the supernatural implications or application or whatever you want, want to term it. I reject that. Uh, I think it's not just unhelpful, but I think it is a betrayal of one's um, basic Christian um, presuppositions um, and, and, and commitments in reading the biblical text. Um, 
from my understanding, Christ is the Alpha and Omega of biblical hermeneutics. We begin with Christ and we end with Christ. Um, there's a distinction to be made, of course, between natural and supernatural things, but not a separation. There's a relative autonomy, Vatican II would probably say. There's a relative autonomy of natural things. Um, and the church fathers recognize that. They wouldn't have used that terminology to be sure, and it's not the most felicitous terminology in my understanding. I don't like the word autonomy. But, but the matter itself is something that the church fathers knew about. So when St. Gregory of Nyssa, for example, uh, in the life of Moses, um, divides his book into two parts, he begins with, with a historia section, a section on, 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 on historical reading. And then he does a theoria section, a contemplation section. Um, it's basically historical and spiritual exegesis, two sections to the book. He, distinguish, he, he separates them out in terms of the layout of the book. But when you read the Historia section, the first one, it's filled with supernatural uh, claims. Um, it's not what we, you might call it natural, and you might think, hey, is that methodological naturalism? No, it's not at all, because his understanding of history is not one of pure nature, as, as, you know, as, as, as we know it now. It's not the modern understanding of a world that is shorn of supernatural, supernatural being, supernatural life. No, the, the, the divine, Gregory wouldn't use that term, but let's, let's say the divine is always already present. Christ is always already present um, within, within um, the, the, the historical reading of the text. So um, the, the reason for this has to do, I think, also, the reason why we cannot accept methodological naturalism also has to do with the reason why we have the scriptures in the first place. The scriptures are, are, are the text of the church and are meant to guide us um, toward deeper, um, a deeper entry into God's life. Mm. Um, and when we, when we say, well, that's a second step, that's a second step, we're ignoring that that is uh, the very reason why God gave us this text in the first place. Okay. Some, some, some responses, but. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that um, lays a, a lot of um, what you're talking about in the, the first chapter on the table, this kind of um, um, idea that we should interpret the Bible um, Christologically. Um, and um, I suppose um, something I've, I've wondered is like, um, let's envisage, envisage a scenario where a committed Christian Bible scholar say they want to investigate something um, grammatical, historical about the, about the gospel, uh, not the gospel, sorry, about the Old Testament, say they want to investigate the, the ancient Near Eastern background of Genesis 2 and 3. Um, how, how should Christological exegesis, maybe you can just quickly define that at the start, but how should that be utilized in this uh, particular example? Yeah, it's a very difficult question. So um, when I talk about Christological interpretation, um, what I mean is that um, although chronologically uh, Christ may come later in the fullness of time, later than, say, the writing of, of Genesis 2 and 3, um, Christ is always already the treasure present within 
Genesis 2 and 3. Um, he's, Christ is not an afterthought. Um, uh, he, is, he is the, the reality, the race, present within the sacrament of the text. So when we, when we look for Christ in the Old Testament, not just the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but when we look for Christ in the Old Testament as the treasure hidden there, uh, and, and we dig him up, as it were, going with Matthew 13, 43, we dig him up, up as it were, um, we're finding him there. We're not putting him onto it. It's, it's not our subjective uh, imposition upon the Old Testament text, upon Genesis 2 and 3. No, he's already there, and our, our, our job is, is, is to find him in, in, in faith through the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and the reason I, that I think we can, we can do this, and I call upon to do this, um, has to do with divine providence. Um, if you don't hold to providence, you could say, well, that, that, that's fancy, fancy footwork. Uh, you're, just, you're just constructively imposing something upon the text. Um, but it seems to me that John Webster was right when he said the reason we no longer read scripture this way is that we've, we've, we've lost our nerve with regard to divine providence. I think that's exactly right. Um, so both in terms of inspiration of scripture and in terms of, of a broader doctrine of divine providence, um, we're called upon, I think, to read the Old Testament Christologically, Christologically because it is Christological. Um, now, uh, with regard to Genesis 2 and 3, um, as, as, you, as you may know, um, St. Augustine made five attempts at interpreting Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And, and I don't know if he ever was quite happy with the end result. Um, and I've never dared, I've never dared to preach on Genesis 1, 2, or 3. Um, never, never quite dared. Um, and maybe that just shows my own spiritual... Um, uh, 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 immaturity. Um, and there's a comment I want to make about that, I suppose, about the immaturity of, of, of us as readers. Um, the search for Christ is not one of which you can say, oh, Christ is there. Now I have captured him. And now I understand the text. That's not the kind of exegesis that I would propose. There is a Christological, I could imagine 10 or 20 sermons on Genesis 2 and 3, all Christological in character and all different from one another, and all of them legitimate, some probably much more profound than others, um, and, and, and offering much more insight than others, but all of them having some degree of legitimacy. And the reason for that is that participation on a Christian Platonist understanding has, has degrees of, of intensity. One, one commonality, let me just offer one brief, uh, brief element on Genesis 2 and 3 that I, think, that I suspect would come to the fore in all 10 or 15 sermons, and that is Christ would be the tree of life. Um, and, and, and in other words, none of these readings would read Genesis 2 and 3 as a, as, as a straightforwardly historical description. Um, that's not how any of the church fathers would have read uh, in, in a more fundamentalist understanding of the word, right? Not, yeah. None of the two fathers would have would have read scripture that way, I think. 
Um, there's a great book on that, by the way, by Craig Allard, former colleague of mine from Trinity Western University. I forget the, the title right now, but it has to do with, with how the church fathers read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, the, the, but all the church fathers would have looked to Christ as the tree of life. And the reason is that um, the tree of life, according to Proverbs 3.18, is wisdom. Um, and when the church fathers would read um, wisdom as the tree of life, um, they would immediately turn to Colossians and other, other New Testament Pauline passages and say, Christ is our wisdom. And that's why the book of Revelation, again, turns, turns at the very end to the tree of life, uses images of Ezekiel uh, as, as this amazing tree that gives healing to the nations and that flourishes like no other tree ever did on both sides of the river and so on and so forth. So in some way or another, it, it would the, the tree of life would come to the fore. And, and it would be, it would be a, a read otherwise. It would be allegorically interpreted as, as being Christ. Mm. And do you think uh, is the is, is the is the Near Eastern background is that relevant? Do you think when people are interpreting Genesis two or three, or uh, what, what what would you say? Uh, um, it, it is, but I think um, we should not overdo it. Yeah, um, because the primary context is canonical. The primary context is Christological, and um, the church fathers, had they known, or medieval authors, had they known what we now know, or at least what some of us now know, I don't, but what some of us now know about ancient Near Eastern um, backgrounds to, or what we think we know about, uh, about Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and the ancient Near Eastern background, they, they might well have used it. They would have used it. There's no, no difficulty in using it. But I think they would, would certainly not be myopic about it. So if you take Origen, for example, um, he doesn't he doesn't deny historical readings of, of various biblical passages of the Old Testament that he preaches upon. But it, it is fair to say that he's markedly indifferent to it. He's markedly indifferent to it. Um, and one reason I suspect is that that uh, is the is the disagreement among biblical scholars themselves or among historians themselves about what might be um, an ancient Near Eastern background. Do we have to look to Mesopotamia? Do we have to look to Egypt? Do we have to look to Canaan? Who knows? Um, so biblical scholars continuously have these legitimate discussions, but the church cannot wait for, for, for scholars to figure these things out before they proclaim truth. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's definitely true that there is a lot of debate over, you know, if it's Egypt or if it's uh, Canaan or wherever it is. So right, that, right, that's, right. that's a great point. Um, and anyone who's who's been listening to this will know uh, so far that the way you're approaching these texts is certainly very different from uh, some of the more uh, grammatical historical uh, people we've had on on this podcast. So, um. One of the one of the things that you devote some time uh, in your first chapter to is this topic of um, allegorical interpretation, and um, you are obviously very in favor of this. And um, so, how would you define this? And to what extent can our contemporary exegesis be based on this model when it sometimes, uh, to put it bluntly, it does seem a bit fanciful as practiced sure. by the church fathers? Yes. You know. Yes. Um, you could define allegorizing if you if you looked at it etymologically, 
as reading otherwise. That's what the, te- what the term literally means, reading otherwise. Now, you can read otherwise in, in different ways, of course. It could be very fanciful. You could take a word or, 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 or a passage in, in the scriptures and, and impose your meaning upon it. Uh, the, the weirder, the better. An allegory can go off the rails in all sorts of weird and wonderful ways. It's, it, it goes off the rails in those cases, right? Um, Henri de Lubac, great patristic and medieval scholar of the mid-20th century, um, makes the point time and time again that when the church fathers allegorize, um, although they certainly learned from the Platonic tradition and and from Philo, Jewish interpreter, first century interpreter, um, their concern is um, nearly always Christological. so when they allegorize, when they read otherwise, they do the kind of thing that I mentioned to you earlier. They dig, they dig in the Old Testament to look for Christ. So for them, allegorizing is the same as Christological interpretation. Take for, take for example, the confession that Jesus is Lord. Uh, on my understanding, that's an allegorical statement. Uh, it's allegorical because to say that Jesus is kurios, Lord, is to take... Uh, an expression from the Septuagint, from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, kurios, Lord, Yahweh. And it is to put Jesus in the place of Yahweh. Now, when, when the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, our, the Lord is one, um, when, it, when, it, when it makes this confession, it uses the terms God and Lord, Theos and kurios, both for Yahweh. But, but St. Paul does not, he, he, he separates them out, right, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and says, yeah, for us, there's one God, the Father, and there's one Lord, Jesus. And you think to yourself, pardon me? But 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 Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, uses the word Lord, not the way you're using it. It, it talks about Yahweh, not about Jesus. Except, of course, if it's true that Jesus, Jesus was always already there, sacramentally. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Paul is doing. The church fathers thought that that's what Paul was doing. So, so there, there, are cert, there are certain strictures, in other words, certain guides in terms of what is proper and improper allegory. Unlike um, some, some historical modes of reading scripture where, where questions of truth get endlessly deferred, um, and so, that, so that we never arrive at, at, at agreement on, on matters of historical backdrop. Um, there's, there's actually marked, there, there are marked similarities among the church fathers and medieval authors in terms of how to read it. That's why, for example, I said, well, when it comes to Genesis 2 and 3, one thing they'll pretty much agree upon, and that, they, that many of them will bring to the fore when they preach on it, is, is Christ is the tree of life. And that's because there's a, sort, a certain verbal association, a certain approach to this. There's a certain Christological centrality that leads to similarities. Amidst these similarities, obviously, they're not after the one true meaning of the text. But, but yes, but, but your point is well taken. Allegorizing can go off the rails, sometimes does wildly go off the rails. Um, but... but it's important to ask, I think, so So, is this, is this Christological? Is this ecclesiological? Because church is included in Christ. Um, and, and, and if so, how does this particular interpreter, whoever it is, 
how, how, how does he arrive at, at, at this particular reading? Mm, mm. And I think one thing I would ask is, in terms of, you know, if, would I be correct in saying if the goal of our allegory is, um, it's not just Christological, but it's also ecclesiological and, and such, does this, um, does this help maybe to um, defect the charge of, you know, Christomonism? You know that the the whole Old Testament just turns into sort of uh, it's only Christ that matters, whereas if right. you have these other parameters, it um, kind of helps um, allegor allegorical interpretation to be a more. Well, suppose it would. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned that um, because it's something that uh, I mean I've 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 had many criticisms of my my you know my acceptance of Platonism. Christian Platonism, that is, and also of, of the corresponding uh, embrace of allegorizing. I've never been accused of Christomonism in my interpretation, in my, in my, in my, in my hermeneutic. Um, and, and I suppose that the reason for it is, um, like you're saying, there's the ecclesiology, although it's a Christologically shaped ecclesiology. Um, but the fourfold um, fourfold method, as it is often called, I don't like the word method too much, but the fourfold approach to interpreting scripture uh, that came to the fore with John Cassian first and, and moves into the Middle Ages, where you first have the literal meaning, then you have the allegorical, then you have the moral or the tropological, and finally you have the anagogical or the eschatological. If, if, you, if, if you pay attention to all four, you link them somehow in your, in your, in your exegesis. Um, there, there will be Christology, and it will lie at the heart of it, um, but it won't. It won't be Christological at the cost of, our, of other elements that that all come to the fore. There's this. We we find ourselves within the biblical text, and, and with all of our, our, our foibles and and, 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 and and difficulties that we have in life, and so on. Mm. Yeah, we've touched on this a bit. And uh, well, in fact, that's it's probably been most of what you've discussed is kind of the criticism of the um, historical grammatical method of interpretation, sort of the plain meaning interpretation is the only way, sort of that way of interpretation as practiced by most Christian scholars. But there are some Christians who have moved on um, to other methods of academic interpretation. You know, you have post-colonial or you have womanist or feminist or uh, literary theory interpretations. Do you think your book has anything to offer to scholars who utilize these methods of interpretation? Yeah, I, I don't discuss any of these in the book. Um, and it also seems to me that that within the four that you mentioned, um, we, we want to distinguish probably between postcolonial womanist and feminist interpretations on the one hand and literary interpretation on the other. Um, because the first three have to do with our own context as it may shape our reading of, of scripture. And the other has to do with the way that the text itself is structured, uh, the literary interpretation. So th those two categories are important to distinguish, it seems to me. Um, I have a lot of use for literary exegesis. And it seems to me that um, when you're looking at um, the, the literal meaning of the text, which any good interpreter ought to do, um, you're, going to, you're going to take literary interpretation into account. Um, 
for, for that reason, I also have a, a great deal of sympathy, actually, despite my objections to the way it is it is structured overly horizontally. I've, I have a lot of sympathy for grammatical historical reading, and I, I, I practice a lot of it in my own exegesis and you know, when I preach and so on. Um, as far as the first categories that you mentioned are concerned, post-colonial, womanist, feminist, um, let me make two comments. One is, um, it is certainly true, and the correct insight in it is that we that it is in an encounter with a text, we bring ourselves and everything that we are to the text, that meaning occurs. Um, so it is, it is, it is certainly true, and I make that point somewhere in the book. Um, let me see if I can find it very quickly for you. Yeah, I make the point on page 41. Uh, where, I, where I write, it's true, for example, that a black woman in 19th century America would have appropriated the Israelites' deliverance in the Exodus differently than I do today as a white seminary professor. There's, there's little doubt about that, it seems to me. Question is twofold. One is, um, is the tradition, since scripture is, is one element within the tradition, most significant element within the tradition, um, is, is uh, do we do we submit, do we subject our own context, whatever it is, to the authority of that tradition? That's one. And, and I think that's an important one. In other words, my status is never, no matter what it is, or what kind of a marginalized position I may, may be in, my position is never a privileged one over that other tradition. Um, and, and, the, and the reason for that is the Augustinian insight that God himself humbled himself, taking on flesh in order that we might be exalted in him. So our divinization is predicated on our self-abnegation. And, and it seems to me that we should avoid the kind of contextual readings that um, uh, privilege uh, our color, our gender, our sexual orientation, whatever it is, um, in in, um, in in our reading of scripture, because what they end up doing too often is is to put ourselves forward rather than to submit ourselves. Yeah, and the idea that our identity is in Christ, not in um, uh, cultural yeah. understandings or um, ethnic yeah. ethnic boundaries or anything. And uh, yeah. of course, that's uh, yeah, that's something that we have to uh, pay attention to. I agree. Um, I'd maybe like to talk a bit about chapter four of your book. Um, we have mostly what we've been talking about so far is chapter chapter one, and I'll leave the other I'll leave the other three chapters for the audience. They can they can see what what they say. Um, but um, Chapter four of your book, I believe it's no, no, no church, no scripture. That's the name of the chapter, isn't right, it? Right. Just off, off the top of my head, yeah. So, one of the controversial aspects of this chapter, and uh, we love drilling down on controversy here, is kind of this sustained argument that you have against um, strict formulations of sola scriptura. You're not just attacking the grammatical historical approach; you're also attacking um, sola scriptura to a certain extent, and so. Um, why do you disagree with this, and um, what do you propose instead? Um, what I say about Zola Scriptura is that um, it is true 
that only scripture is the most significant monument in the tradition. And scripture, therefore, is the one monument of the tradition um, that gives us uh, the material contents for Christian doctrine. Um, all of Christian doctrine is found in, in Holy Scripture, on my understanding. If, if that's what we mean by sola scriptura, I'm entirely on board with it. <laughs> I suspect, though, that many of, of my Protestant friends would not be very happy with, with well, they'd be happy with me saying that, but, or with parts of, of what I was just saying. But they would, say, they would at least think it's insufficient um, because um, they would feel that uh, scripture um, should be should be taken as 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 explicitly teaching all of Christian doctrine, and and moreover, they would feel that the way I I, I spoke just spoke about scripture being the most significant monument within the tradition um, blurs the distinction between scripture and tradition and devalues scripture for that reason. Um, so there is a disagreement there. Um, and the common understanding, therefore, of sola scriptura, namely that we on, uphold only scripture as, as our authority without accepting a, an authoritative role um, for tradition is one that I, I disagree with. Um, it seems to me that, his, that it's not possible to maintain that position historically um, and um, that scripture lies embedded, always already embedded within the tradition. Um, that's not to say that we can just pick and choose uh, things that we believe uh, without without recourse to scripture itself. I don't mean I don't mean that at all. It's simply to say um, that scripture is not the domain of me as an individual scholar. Because it would place the church at the at the um, at the mercy of, of a certain elite group of interpreters, um, academics, and 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 most especially me as the best academic, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and I just don't think that we should should go there. And that that's I remember um, Mike Bird. Um, uses this lovely illustration of you know the the, the scholars just up there in their ivory tower, you know the. And uh, yeah, you can kind of it can kind of almost end up as with like a kind of scholarly papacy. You know, you're replacing one yeah. pope for for another. I guess. Yeah, that's my big fear there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so you just alluded there that um, it's difficult to you know uphold this view um, historically. I believe you said. Um, well, why is that? Uh, just briefly. Um, the, the reason for that is that. Um, there is a rule of faith, a confession, a, a, a basic set of beliefs, you could say, that functioned within the early church at the same time that the church also came to, came to um, uh, celebrate and, and, and accept gratefully uh, certain, certain um, books um, as, as, as having scriptural authority and as being inspired, as having canonical value. Um, so this, <clears throat> it's not as though scripture simply comes from above and we now, <clears throat> in response, um, draw up our confession. 
um, these things go hand in hand. There's there's a there, there's a canon that slowly but surely emerges. Um, although it's fair to say, already in the in the second century, by the time of Irenaeus, you see that um, he, he he quotes authoritatively um, pretty much all of the books that you and I now accept as as canonical. Um, but Irenaeus also talks about uh, the regular fidei, the rule of faith. And he, he, he structures that in a Trinitarian fashion. And he's not the only one, Tertullian does, Hippolytus does. That They all have this rule of faith, this basic confession, Trinitarian confession, that functions as a, as a bellwether for what we, what we ought to accept as Christians. And there's also, and I make, the point, make that point also in the same chapter, there's also um, the way in which the liturgy functions. Uh, long before there, there is a canon, there is, there, there, there is a liturgical celebration from week to week, um, within which, of course, there are scriptures that are being read and, and, and that are being venerated. Um, but they are read and venerated within that liturgical context. And um, they, they have that primary place within that liturgical context. So creed or rule of faith, um, canon, liturgy, um, we, we shouldn't pick from those three that, that I deal with in, in this chapter. We shouldn't pick from those three one and say, now this is the one that, 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 that um, is, is, is without context. And that, that we can with, with, with great, pers that has great perspicuity um, and, and, and that, that, is, that is clear for all. If, if you do that, if you take one of them, say the Bible by itself, and, and you, 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 sh you tear away from it, the confession of the church, you tear away from it, the, its liturgical setting. Um, again, what you end up doing is, is, is um, you, you end up with a sort of Gnostic um, approach to scripture where, where just me and my brain, I going to figure out what this text means, mm -hmm. uh, along with the scholarly apparatus that that I happen to have have handy in my brain. I, I think you recognize that it's not as though um, the motivation that that a lot of um, evangelical scholars would have for sola scripture. It's not without you know it's fair like fair concerns behind it. But one of the points that you make to, to counter this is the idea of distinguishing between tradition and um, traditionalism. Mm -hmm. So um, could you could you briefly maybe explain that? And um, at what point do you think we make um, the judgment that a strong emphasis on tradition has, you know, changed for the worse into traditionalism? Okay. Yes, it's a great question. Yaroslav um, Pelikan has this great little booklet on tradition called, I believe, The Vindication of Tradition. Um, and he, he somewhere in that book makes the comment that um, tradition is the living faith of the dead. And traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. <laughs> Couldn't capture the, the, the difference better, I think, even, even though you haven't yet answered your question at that point. How, how, how do you determine, you know, when you shift from the former into the latter? Um, but, but still, I think it's a great way of, of articulating the difference. Um, so um, 
I don't think we should advocate traditionalism. I don't think we should advocate the uh, dead faith uh, of the living, just going through the motions as it were, this is the way we do things, or this is what we believe because we've always believed it and because we've always done it. That, that's a sort of traditionalism that, that should be far from any Christian. Um, the reason we do things is because the spirit guides us into the life of God, the efficacious. Um, and, and inherited, uh, the inherited Christian faith is, is better for that than, than anything else. Now, um, one, one way perhaps to talk about that is, is, is by distinguishing between capital T and small t tradition, which I do, I believe, in that same chapter. Um, capital T tradition, you could say, is the gospel itself, the Christological heart of, of, of the faith. Um, and, and small T tradition is the passing on of that capital T tradition. So small T tradition, you could say, is, is, is the verb, and capital, capital T tradition um, is a noun. And because tradition is a verb, small T, a verb, um, it's an action. Yves Congar, in his work on, on tradition, constantly emphasizes the active role of tradition. Um, there is a development, in other words, that, that takes place here. Uh, there's an ongoing thing. Um, and that development, although it's always checked by Holy Scripture, and it always needs to return to Holy Scripture, um, that development prevents us from traditionalism. I don't know that it's possible, maybe it is, but I, I wouldn't know how. I don't think it is possible to decide beforehand or, or to decide in some sort of abstract fashion when you lapse into traditional listen. Um, um, it's always a matter, I think, of weighing and the, the, the numerous factors that you encounter as church within your context. Um, over against, not over against, but, but in relation to the, the, the faith and the practices that you've received. And the question is always, how, how in wisdom do we, do we adhere to the capital T tradition um, in, in, in ways that are faithful to it, that don't imperil it in any way, um, and, and, and that is open to the spirits leading in terms of, of, of um, how to give that shape in today's world. Mm. Um, I realize that sounds very vague and it is very vague. And the reason for that I suspect is it, it depends on, on, on where we find ourselves. Yeah. Let me just say this to, to add to that, but just say this, um, our inclination as modern Westerners is to emphasize the development side of things, to, to, to push for change, to push for progress, because we're enlightenment creatures. Mm. Um, and I, 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 that's not the kind of you know, horse I'm sitting upon. <laughs> okay, yeah. And um, another thing you know, that I really um, found beneficial in this chapter was you know, just that the, the point that you make that you know, tradition is just all over the New Testament, you know, that it's in... Um, it's uh, especially in the Pauline letters, you know, that's where you, he even he even uses that kind of I think he uses those like 
phrases, doesn't he? When he's like passing on the creeds, he like refers to them as tradition and everything, doesn't he? So absolutely. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a that's a very persuasive. Both in the pastoral epistles and in in, in First Corinthians, uh, he, he deals with that. Saint Paul deals with that. Um, so although there's a lot of critical comments, there are a lot of critical comments about tradition, the tradition of men that Jesus talks about, right? Um, so human traditions, strictly human traditions, apart from divine origin, are problematic. It's all, the question is not, is tradition good? It, it, in principle, it is. I mean, St. Paul makes that very clear. What I've received from others, I pass on to you. That's tradition in language, 1 Corinthians 11 and 15, right? But, mm. but um, the, the question is always, what tradition and, and, and what do we do with that? Mm. It just occurred to me there, um, we're coming towards the end of our conversation. And the first, the first question I, I asked you was that what's the difference between someone who considers themselves a theologian and someone who considers themselves a Bible scholar? And I think any, um, any uh, person who's listening to this podcast will, will now know, because the way you have answered these questions has been so, um, so different. Maybe you're thinking through this like how a church father would, you know, <laughs> is that how you'd like well, to? Well, compliment, let's just yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and of course, it's worth mentioning that there's a companion book to this, and it was written by Scott McKnight, and it's called Things Bible Scholars Wish Theologians Knew. And um, Scott is, uh, I've, I listen to him a lot, and he's a fascinating uh, teacher. Um, would you would you consider these books to be complementary, or is this a debate of sorts? You know, does Scott disagree with some of your points and vice versa? Um, yeah, you're staying in yeah. separate hotels, I'm guessing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, we just saw each other two days ago uh, in Madison, uh, in Wisconsin. We had a um, a, a uh, panel discussion, kind of uh, about the two books at the upper house there, um, and. Um, I've known Scott for many years, um, and I appreciate greatly how he how he treats the scriptures. Um, he's keenly aware of the pre-understandings that we bring to the text. He is strongly insistent in his companion book that we must read the Bible um, through the lens of tradition. He has lots and lots of um, positive things to say about the dogmatic inheritance of the church in, in the fourth century, Nicaea, and, and, and so on. Um, that's the way he wants to read scripture. And that's the way he thinks we should read scripture. So, so the dialogue that he and I have is not one of, of, of uh, you know, a dogfight or anything like that. Um, uh, he, he's he's, a, he's a, a biblical scholar that, that is very interested in theological interpretation of scripture. Um, do we have our differences? Yes, we do. Um, and, and, and just to highlight the, the one from his side and one from my side, uh, and, and probably those are, those are you know, the, 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 I wouldn't even know of, of, of many more others besides. Um, from his side, he, he, he would probably question my, my uh, insistence that we, that we need Christian Platonism. Um, the one chapter that he thinks, ah, I'm scratching myself behind the ear here, is the chapter, no, no Plato, no scripture. Okay. <laughs> you know? okay. Um, and and where, where he and I uh, might also have some further discussion is, uh, from my perspective, that is, is, is the question of how context and, and scripture 
relate to one another. So if it's true that all our understandings, uh, pre-understandings enter into the way that we read scripture, um, um, does that, does that, if that's true, does that then allow for the kind of contextual readings that you and I discussed earlier? And how are those contextual factors normed by the scriptures and by the tradition of the church? Um, that's where we would, you know, have have some discussion. So what? So what does he think of allegorical interpretation? Is he into that? Um, we did not. That's a great question. Um, I don't know that he. Maybe he does that. I don't remember. My memory is is, is terrible. Mm. Um, but maybe he discusses the term allegory in his book. That I don't remember it. Um, I honestly I don't recall him doing it, and I. And it did not come up in our conversation two days ago. Um, my my, what he does do though, is 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 he 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 writes in his book clearly um, that we need to look for Christ in the scriptures. We need to read sacramentally. He makes that point explicitly. Um, that's how I define allegory. He might he might not. He probably does not use that terminology. Um, but when it comes to what we're actually doing when it comes to reading the Old Testament Christologically, uh, I suspect we're not that far apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's been uh, it's been great to talk to you and uh, hear all your um, theological insights. Yeah. No, but it's been great being with you, Patrick. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for doing this. Can I call you Hans? Yeah. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, uh, Hans. Right. I'll see you around. All right. Yeah, blessings. See you. Blessings.